Trying to find out who killed someone can be murder. But what makes it really annoying is when the murderer has the temerity of committing his crime somewhere else. Sounds like it's time for episode 57 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your a pint of bitters in a thin glass host, Howard Kasner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, movie hyphenate writer, filmmaker, academic businessman, Tony Klinger, who has chosen as his film, the 1970s cult classic and Michael Caine crime film, Get Carter, while I have chosen the Spencer Tracy, John Sturgis, 1955 contemporary western, Bad Day at Black Rock, both films about someone who travels to another location in order to solve a murder. To begin, Tony, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? My pleasure. First of all, let me admit to a certain selfishness in picking Get Carter because my father was the producer of the original Get Carter film and I happened to have been around at the time making my own little film. I also was fortunate enough to be able to make a film about that film, which is presently in production called Dirty, Sexy and Totally Iconic. Selfishness aside, I am by nature a storyteller. I was originally a writer, then an editor, and then worked every grade except the craft grades in filmmaking, uh, starting with The Avengers as a lowly third assistant. I think I was a second third assistant director. Which Avengers was it? The Avengers with Linda Thorson as the leading lady. I then worked everywhere, BBC, all the normal places, worked on plays, films, TV shows, worked my way out. And it's probably because I just didn't know what I couldn't do. So I figured I could do everything. Realised too late that I couldn't, but I'd already done it. Started off in documentaries in, in a senior role. And then they became what they now call rockumentaries. I worked with Deep Purple and The Who and, and lots of famous composers. And then segued my way into feature films, both as a line producer for big films by other people and then eventually for myself. Thank you. That sounds great. I think it's going to be a very interesting episode. With that, let's get to your selection, and that is Get Carter. Get Carter is a British crime film released in 1971. It was written and directed by Mike Hodges in his directorial debut based on the 1970 novel Jack's Return Home by Ted Lewis. And as you mentioned, it was produced by your father, Michael Klinger. It stars Michael Caine, Ian Hendry, John Osborne, Britt Eklund, Brian Mosley, George Sewell, Tony Beckley, Glenn Edwards, Alan Armstrong, Bernard Hepton, Petra Markham, Geraldine Moffat, Rosemary Denham, John Binden, Terence Rigby, and Carl Howard. When gangster Jack Carter learns of the death of his brother in an apparent car accident, he leaves London against the wishes of his bosses to return home and find out what really happened. But the local crime gangs don't want him there nosing around and trying to uncover the truth. Now, you mentioned one reason why you chose the film. That's normally my first question. Why did you choose this film? One of the reasons was because your father did produce it. When did you first see it? Oh, I was there even during production. I was involved in it in a strange way right from the beginning when they were looking for locations for a gangster's apartment in London. And I happened to date a girl who was an American girl in London at the time. I was, I guess, 19. We went back to her uncle's apartment, which was in the centre of London. I looked at this place and I just said, oh, this would be a wonderful location for a gangster's apartment, not realising her uncle was a gangster. How? <laughs> the set you see in the film is exactly as he had it. It was not dressed 
or anything like that because it didn't need to be. I was at the pre-production party right through and although I was making my own film at the time, my second or third about young people and drug addiction and stuff like that during that summer, I got invited by my dad to come down to the set on my way up to another thing we were shooting up in Glasgow. So Newcastle was kind of on the way from London to Glasgow. So we were supposed to stay for a day or two and we ended up staying a lot longer because we had such a great time with the young people in the town. That's how I got to be involved with that film. When did you first see it? Did you see it upon opening? I saw it every stage. I saw it during the edit. I had a wonderful editor, a man called John Trumper, who was an extremely difficult, obstinate man, who my father had pretty much insisted that Mike Hodges uses, who he didn't want to use. And he will admit now, he was very, very difficult, but a very, very talented, in fact, almost a genius editor. So I saw it at every stage. In fact, there was a big gap between when I last saw it, which was, oh, 30, 40 years ago, and when I had the showing of my film, The Man Who Got Carter, about my father. And I realized what a terrific film it is. Well, what did you think upon first seeing it? Did you know, even though it didn't quite get the reception in England that was something for, did you recognize what the film was and what it would become? Sometimes a film is better than you expected, and this was that occasion. It just turned out really well. And the critics did warm to it, and it did very, very well in Europe. It was in America where they put it with Frank Sinatra film, was double bill called Dirty Dingus McGee, which was an MGM favorite of Mr. Sinatra. They killed it in America, but it became like Orson Welles' film Citizen Kane. It went from, in effect, a failure to a classic without having been a success. It's interesting that if you look at the critics as time has gone by, some of those critics that didn't like it to begin with for what they called pornography of violence then turned it into a classic years later when they've had a chance to think about it. You do mention one interesting thing that we'll actually talk about further. It did not do well in the U.S. The distributor had no faith in it, which was really odd because the critical reception of it in the U.S. was much, much better than the British critical reception of it. And There was a cinema, I think, in Chicago or someplace like that where they would put sort of the lost classics of the year, things that hadn't done well, that hadn't had a proper release, and they put it there. It was rated by most of the American critics as one of the top 10 films of the year. And Pauline Kael made a big issue about it with MGM. It was kind of interesting because she was one of the leading critics in American cinema. It was the reverse. As you said, in England, where the critics hadn't been kind, the film had commercially done extremely well. And in America, the exact opposite happened. The critics really loved it. And the company that had financed it just for some reason or other, we didn't know, just buried it. What are some of your favorite scenes? Oh, there's so many. All the catchphrase scenes. The one I loved the best because it actually was something that my grandmother used to say to me, about me, was the scene where Michael Caine takes off the sunglasses, the shades, off the character Ian Hendry, who's like the local gangster that he's knew from childhood. And he looks in his eyes and he says, eyes still the same, I see, like piss holes in the snow. Other scenes were the famous scene where he looks at the guy who thinks he's going to take him on in a kind of fight. And he says, you're a big guy, but you're out of shape. I do this for a living, you know, and you know, don't mess with this guy. There were loads of scenes in the film that have become classic scenes, particularly in England, where magazines like Time Out have said they regarded it as a critic's poet as the best British film of all time. That's not the best British gangster film, best British film of all time. I disagree with that. My father disagreed with that because we think it actually wasn't his best film. We think my father's best film is probably a film called Cordesac, which he made with Roman Polanski. It's certainly one of the highest rated gangster films of all time coming out of Britain. 
I don't think all of the British gangster type movies, which have been many, all the way from that to Long Good Friday to the Guy Ritchie kind of lock, stock and two smoking barrel kind of film, all originated with that film. It was the first of its type since Brighton Rock. And the scenes in it, when you talk about what scenes, there were so many that evoked that period, that time, that place in Britain. And I think for an American audience, actually, they were seeing Britain in another type of way that they'd never seen in England before. Tough and gritty and not actually blokes with bowler hats walking around going pip pip. And that's probably why it's resonated through the periods. I know you asked me a specific scene. I, I could name you 20. Right. Uh, the scene where he arrives in the train. The guy who actually you kill him is on that train in that carriage that is reading Raymond Chandler book because it's an homage to film noir. Right. Some of my favorite scenes, like so many people, it's when he's in the bar and he orders the bitters and he goes, hey, in a thin glass. That seemed to really resonate with a lot of people. But I think the highlight for me and one of the best scenes in it, and then basically almost every scene after that, is the scene where he sees the porn film. Yeah. Everything starts to come together for him. It's a little lengthy, but it's justified. Michael Caine pulls it off, and we're seeing it as he's seeing it, and we're realizing what went on and what happened as he did. So that everything after that, when he confronts the guy at the bedding parlor and they go out in the back, he stabs him. One of the most shocking scenes to me, for another reason which we'll get into, when they push the car into the water. Yeah. And we know something they don't, that there's a body in the trunk. It just really picks up then where there's one scene after another, after another, after another. Mike Hodges is the director. What do you think of Mike Hodges? He was, funny enough, comparison, so with Sturgis. I think he had that kind of ability. We picked him because of two TV movies he made called Rumours and Suspect. We immediately we tried to get him, and we did. I think those three films, Get Carter, Rumours and Suspects, vindicate my view that he could have been one of the great British directors. He did some great work. I don't think the rest of his career really lived up to that promise. I don't mean to compare the styles and the people, but kind of like Orson Welles, where do you go from Citizen Kane? You're going to go down. I think it was probably unlucky for him that he got that great piece of material to work with right at the start of his filmmaking career. He's a friend. Number one, I start by saying he's a friend. And my father used to describe him as the ginger-haired Polanski. He had that kind of talent. I don't think he fulfilled it in his later period, other than for the film Croupier, which was the nearest thing I thought he did to that kind of level. Unfortunately, in the middle of his career, he didn't get the material he should have been working on. Do you think it's strange that after Get Carter, his career didn't quite go the way other directors might have gone. I do agree about Croupier. That's probably his best or second best. I'm actually a fan of Flash Gordon. I think it's underrated. I'm with Pauline Kael on that. I think it's a big, fun movie. I think that's choice of material. And also, he wasn't at his best for a period. I suppose that also luck, isn't it? I suppose you get the right material. Right. I agree with you about Flash Gordon, by the way. I think vastly underrated film. I remember him being on that set and I had a quick word with him and I was saying words to the effect of, oh, it's great to see you in your film. And 
and Laurentiis went past and said, it is not his film, it is a Dino De Laurentiis film, and that kind of told you the story. He needed to be in control artistically of what was in front of his camera, and he needed a producer, some people do, who could help support him in all those efforts. I think he very rarely found that support. The look of the film was very much of its time. This is not a negative when I say this. There are reasons for why it looks this way. It looks a little ragged. The editing is jagged. There's an emphasis on reality rather than a carefully crafted, controlled scenes from the studio era. And that was very popular at the time. They wanted a more realistic, they wanted a more down-to-earth look for films. This was true in America as it was written. In many ways, it's a mixture of the French New Wave, which is where we get a lot of these directorial look and techniques, and Italian neorealism, mixed with the angry young man kitchen sink dramas. We noted that there's an emphasis on the proletariat in the film, that of the working class aspect of being a gangster of Newcastle. I guess Hodges thought it was a downbeat place. It was a tough tough industrial town. Yeah. Yeah. One critic called it Jacobean, and I thought that was a very good observation. Film noir, especially in U.S. film noir, tends to be a bit more Shakespearean. Some innocent or relatively innocent person gets caught up in something over his head that he has a hard time controlling and that it ultimately destroys him, but he did make the original choice. This is Jacobean. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of vengeance. It's a bit over the top. It's very cruel, mean. So it's a very Jacobean neo-noir film. I think that's Jacobean. Jacobean description is quite perceptive and accurate. It does have, obviously, the Shakespearean overtones of exactly as you described in terms of American neorealism, where you go from the man is put in an impossible position. Either he backs off and lets them do what they've done to his brother and his niece. In effect, he's like an ancient man of honour doing the chivalrous thing and prepared to die for it. That is also partly embedded in the British psyche, whether or not the code of honour was actually what happened or whether that's our perception of what happened. He actually does things that you actually could say, well, okay, it's not about his redemption, but it is about he's doing the thing that we'd all want to do if somebody did that to our family. You mustn't forget, he is a hitman. He's a gangster. That's what he does for a living. This does bring to another aspect of the film. This was a period where a lot of films were transitional. We've mentioned that this was a very influential British crime film, so it's a transitional film in that area. But it's also the beginning of the introduction of the existential anti-hero. A taxi driver doesn't arrive for five more years. We have this existential anti-hero, Angry Young Man. In the U.S., film novels generally revolved around private detectives and relatively innocent men. In France, film while revolved around criminals and gangsters. And a friend said this was because of World War II, because during the war, if you were people in authority, if you were Nazis, if you were on the wrong side of the war, you were patriots, basically. And that's why there's this divergence. But here we have this a central character, Michael Caine, Carter, who is in many ways very existential. And in existentialism, there is no essential meaning in life, so you choose your meaning. You define who you are. He defines himself as this gangster. He defines himself as an assassin. He makes no apology for it. He doesn't try to defend himself. This is the decision he made. But he's also in many ways a loner. An existential person is his own law. So even though he works for these mobsters in London who say, we don't want you going down there to do that, he's going to define himself by going down and getting justice for his brother 
I wanted to add two uh, things to what you're saying, which harps back on something you said a few minutes ago. The makers of the film, my father, Mike Hodges, and Michael Caine, although I can't speak for his later years, all basically what in England, English terms, we call socialists. They were all left-leaning politically, and therefore part of the storytelling was look at this background. Newcastle, the place where it was filmed, is actually a character in the film. It's the background that is England. England in a pre-Thatcher kind of England where it was tough. When you went down the motorway, freeway as you call it, got off the other end from London, which was still prosperous and it was like walking into a third world country it was representational of how they all saw the, their country though it's not stated loudly and clearly that's part of the comment is look at this place look at these people look at how they have to live and i think that was integral to the piece and they meant well for the local people like the mayor and the people that were running the town and the police chief and all that. they kind of run the town in a way that you just don't see in england now it was completely owned and controlled by people that were not good people. People called T. Dan Smith and Paulson and people that were running the place all ended up mostly either in jail or dead. The second thing, which is something you probably don't know, recently I was asked would I be interested in producing a film based on a character that was involved with this film. And I went, what character? It was a work of fiction. And they said, no, the man John Osborne played, the chief gangster of Newcastle, of that region, that was a real person. And they named him, and I've seen this is evidence, his son is now a very senior banker. He wanted to get involved in raising the finance to make this very big film about character and what really happened. All of this obviously has a fictional narrative now, but it's actually based on the reality of this place and the time that existed. Well, that's very interesting also because in the book, no town is named. In fact, in our film Dirty Sexy and Tokyo Iconic that we're presently producing, we went to the original place where that was written about, which is at the brickworks on the banks of the River Humber. We actually filmed from a drone as a local writer, Nick Triplo, was reading those last words about where he was to get killed in the film, which has changed quite a lot since then. The Humber Bridge is now 40 years old. What happened was that when the original place, which was basically the region around Barton and upon Humber, which is near Scunthorpe and places like that, not the greatest places on the planet, but fun in their own kind of way, those places actually didn't spark the interest of Hodges or Klinger in the essence that they had. They were very small and, and not much to see. Hodges knew the coast of England very well because he used to be in the Merchant Navy and had gone up and down that coast and knew it very well and drove up and down till he found a place that he thought was right. And then my old man got called and they went and they decided that was the area because Newcastle evoked a part of England that thankfully no longer exists. I must add places like that may be parts of New Jersey at the time. Places is the, uh, now the Rust Belt in America. Mike Hodges had an interesting quote when talking about the character. He said, I wanted him, Carter, to be dealt with in exactly the same way he dealt with other people. Now, that's sort of a Christian ethic in a way. That was a prerequisite of the film for me, that the hitman should go click and that's it. Even though this is a very existential film, it doesn't necessarily end existentially. It ends, you pay for your crime. It ends very 1940s and 50s. You don't get away with it. Even though I had seen the film before, I could not remember whether he got away. And I sort of thought, oh, didn't he get away with it? But no, he doesn't get away with it. Funnily enough, that was one of the things I remember fighting everybody about. I fought everybody about, before the production, the name of the film. I just wanted to call it Carter. I argued about the location because I thought we should make it in America, in Philadelphia. And I 
argued that he shouldn't get killed at the end because this was clearly a film that should have a the character should go on. Um, I agree with you. I, I, I lost I, all three fights. <laughs> yeah, I think the ending is a mistake. Though apparently, even though the book is ambiguous at the end, there is some indication he gets killed in the book. I think the movie actually calls for Carter to survive. Still, this was a transitional film. Bad guys have to pay for their sins in movies. As time goes on, we'll get more and more away from that. I also think there was an almost Puritan ethic to some of the thinking of Mike Hodges and my old man, who used to believe in Jewish muscularity, that bad guys got to pay. The one objection, I have to be honest, that I do have with the film, where I'm not sure it really holds up today as well as it should, for me, there is a somewhat misogynistic streak through the film, which in many ways wasn't unusual for the day. There was a huge transition from the way women were treated in films from the 30s to the 50s, even somewhat to the 60s, where in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, women started to be treated really badly in a huge number of films. Can I ask you a question about that? Because are you assuming today's feelings about misogynistic behavior, etc., which I, I would share with you, can't put that on something that happened 50 years ago? No, but you still can use for analysis of the film. I'm not saying that the film shouldn't be shown or that it's a bad film or anything like that. But I do think that this sort of look into films of the past is very important to do. And it's part of the new criticism. And I think it's very valuable. But in this movie, women are only there for sex. They're there to cheat on their lovers, to prostitute themselves, to get beaten up. There's really not much depth to it. And I think it rises above the characters in the film being misogynistic. I do agree that characters can be misogynistic without the film being misogynistic. But for me, the film goes a bit too far. This was a time when white males in power didn't think that these films were misogynistic, whereas women were complaining about having to play these kind of women that were being treated misogynistically, that all they could get were prostitutes, they had to do all this nudity, they had to be sex objects, they couldn't be anything else, and women had to really fight. No work of art, no film from the past is perfect. And like this is a film that is a trendsetter, as well as reflect trends at the time, it reflects existentialism. It's the beginning of the new British crime thriller. It's a reflection of the anti-hero, etc., etc. It's also a reflection of a certain misogyny that was in films at the time. And I'm not sure there's anything wrong with pointing that out. That's just part of analyzing the film. I think it can be misleading to apply our present moral culture on something that's 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago, you know, that's going to constantly change. I always find it difficult to re-look at history from a present-day perspective all the time. I think you have to analyse it from the perspective at that time because you could end up doing cancel culture on everything. We were talking about the critical reception of the time being different in the U.S. than it was in Britain. Steve Chimiel, I believe his name is, who is a British film historian and professor, writes that America was more used to hard-boiled storytelling and that reviewers there were more prepared than British criticism to treat Git Carter as a serious work. That is true. We had our hard-boiled detective novels, Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, and many, many more. This was part of America's DNA. We had had Bonnie and Clyde in 1967, which was really controversial over its use of violence. And we had the Wild Bunch. And in fact, the year of Git Carter was the year of the French Connection. The American critics were in many ways ahead of the game because we've already done it.
And you mentioned Pauline Kael. She admired its, quote, calculated soullessness, and she wondered if it signaled a, quote, new genre of virtuoso viciousness. And as you said, the film appeared on several U.S. critics' lists of best films of the year. I think the audience would have been very far ahead of the game if they had been given the choice, because films in the U.S. were filming a lot more violent, a lot more cynical. Yeah. And it's had a huge, huge influence. Tarantino has said that it is one of the movies that had the largest influence on him. In addition, it was rediscovered in the 1990s and was treated a lot better in England. Yeah, it has been remarkably well treated since it became legendary. The thing that was interesting to me was we put out some information about the film. We've had literally thousands, tens of thousands of responses. We checked the ages of the people that were responding, thinking they were going to be all older people. And actually, the preponderance was younger people, which surprised us. It's had such a life on cable and satellite and television, which is a shame. It should have had that life in the cinemas. And it's on somewhere in the world almost all the time. I probably did first see it in the 1990s when it came out on VHS when I rented it. Of course, one of the reasons... I would have rented it was Michael Caine. Michael Caine, for me, is an actor, along with such actors as Gene Hackman, Robert Duvall, Vanessa Redgrave, who comes out smelling like a rose no matter what piece of crap they're in. Absolutely true. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And Michael Caine is great in this. Yeah, he's just perfect. My father used to say that about him. He said, you'd never see Caine give a bad performance, even in a terrible film. He just has star quality and acting ability both together. And all those people you mentioned alongside him actually have those same abilities. Even when he's playing a sort of devilish character like that, he has a charm. There's something about him you'd like to sit and talk with him. He's a guy that you'd like to spend time and have a beer with. That's a great gift if you want to be a star, isn't it, really? The ability plus the likability. And in this, as I understand it, he wanted to do it because he wanted a more realistic look at gangsters, gangsters and mobsters that more resembled the people he grew up around. As I understand it, he also changed some things here and there to make Carter, I guess, less likable, made him more cold and hard. I talked to him about that very aspect, and he said to me, this was not long ago, as you said, he grew up amongst people that were gangsters in a very tough part of London, like my dad did, met those kind of guys and knew their sensibilities and why they did things. When he asked one of them what he thought of the film, he thought it was rubbish, and the reason he thought it was rubbish was because they were more tough and more cynical than that. But he said, the reason we do it is because we have wives and families. In your film, we didn't have a wife and a family, really, and then Therefore, what were you doing it for? We do it because we want to put bread on the table. And that was the criticism from the gangsters. But they didn't criticise the way he handled himself in actual the doing of it. He knew very well how those people behave. Every one of the people involved, my father grew up in a part of London, which is London Soho, which is distinct from New York Soho. It's a different place entirely. The nearest thing you could say in the 1920s would be like Boardwalk Empire was to gangsters in America, where there was a Jewish section, an Irish section, an Italian section. You had to learn what goes on, what was acceptable, what you couldn't do, what you could do. And all of that is imported into some of the sensibilities around Kit Carter. The supporting cast is very solid. They all had solid careers, though we don't really remember many of them today. In many ways, a lot of this, this was the highlight of the career. But Ian Hendry was originally supposed to be Carter, but he was an alcoholic and could be very difficult to work with. And so he was put in second position. Michael Caine was then offered the lead. 
And he had a very unfortunate career because of that. It happens to so many artists of all kinds. Ian Hendry was considered one of the great hopes of British theatre and cinema. Wonderful actor. But he did have a problem or two in his personal life that impinged on his ability to turn up on time and stuff like that. Very upsetting for everybody because everybody regarded him as a wonderful, wonderful talent. However, he couldn't take a risk on that. And number one. And number two, the film was financed by MGM and EMI and MGM quite rightly said we need a star in that lead role or somebody that could be a star and it's quite apparent that Michael had that ability and Ian less so. I understand that for the final scenes they shot the scenes leading up to killing of Ian Andrew's character first because the scenes leading up to it required a lot of running, a lot of action. They wanted to make sure that Ian Hendry would be able to shoot those final scenes. But also then it led to the fact that once they shot those scenes, apparently didn't it get to be incredibly bright outside? So they had to wait till the sun was going down to shoot the earlier scenes. That's, uh, that's the story, yeah. <laughs> the other two aspects to look at is cinematography, which is Wolfgang Schusitzky. He grew up making films on location and documentaries. So he brought this everyday realistic feel to the movie. It's one of the reasons why it looks the way it does, because he could shoot these sorts of scenes. He and my dad brought a very European sensibility that wasn't very British. My dad was a first-generation immigrant, and Wolfgang himself was an immigrant. They looked to the cinema of Italy, France, Germany, Hungary, those kind of places, which is how I grew up, rather than the British kind of films of the period. That's how my old man ended up doing stuff with Polanski. It was a different look, a little bit east. To give credit to Shudzinski, he was one of the great cinematographers, and so is his son, Peter. I would say almost cinema verite kind of style of cinematography, or he had that in his toolbox. And then, of course, the jazz music by Roy Budd. I was at the studio that was recorded, Olympic Studios, uh, last week, the guy who was the original tape operator in that session, who I hadn't seen any of it for 50 years. It was kind of strange to be back where Roy Budd was playing the piano and the organ and like a harpsichord thing simultaneously for that music. That was such a departure for what we normally would have with people like Elmer Bernstein, Marshall and people like those guys. And then this guy's come in with a little piano and a harpsichord and an organ. Was that ever the right decision? <laughs> and it was completely unrehearsed. A man, I think, was a very underrated jazz genius. With that, let's start closing out on this. And I would like to talk a little bit more about your father, Michael Klinger, because he was very important to film history in three areas. Of course, Forget Carter, which we've talked about, and its influence on British film and British crime film. You mentioned one of these. He did produce the first two films of Roman Tulansky in the English language, Repulsion and Cul-de-Sac. And with all due respect to your father, as much as I love Cul-de-Sac, I do think Repulsion is the better movie, but, you know, <laughs> picky, picky, picky. We did cover repulsion on the pop ad podcast we paired it with american psycho yeah he also did the confessions series yeah and i saw a documentary about these sorts of films the documentary stated the british film industry was just not doing well at all they just couldn't get any money in. It was an, almost an economic disaster. So these films, Confession series, came along, and I've seen Confessions of a Window Water, and saved the British film industry by bringing in huge amounts of money and kept it afloat. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I have to, again, plead my innocence, but I'll explain. 
I was going on the way to the set of Get Carter in Newcastle. My old man said to me, Tony, before you come here, buy this book on the way, read it, and then we'll talk about it. And so I said, why? He said, just read it. I read this book and it was Confessions of a Window Cleaner. He said, what do you think of it? I said, it's very funny. He said, so do you want to be involved in producing it? I said, why? He said, well, because I'm going to be the executive producer and there's this guy, Greg Smith, who has been my agent. And he's going to be like the producer, but he'd like you on the team. I said, I am an award-winning documentarian. I don't do things like that. This is lowbrow. I'm not going to do this. And turned it down. My old man, four films later, because three sequels in the original, and they made an absolute fortune. I think they were the first or second highest grossing films in the country and in other countries too. At one place, I think it was beating Jaws. I mean, which is ridiculous, but it did. I said, why did you make those films other than money? He said, because that gave me the money to make films like Cool de Sac and Repulsion and stuff like that. You're never going to say no to your royalty checks when I'm dead and gone. <laughs> and you know what? He was right. <laughs> he was so right. He had what we call the old-fashioned word, chutzpah. He was not afraid to make big action films or films like psychological dramas like Repulsion or get Carter a gangster film or the Confession series. He was like for 15 years the most successful independent producer in the country, I think in Europe. It would be interesting to try to think what would British cinema be like without either the confession series bringing all this money in and saving the industry economically, and what would it have been like without get Carter, which was a huge influence. I think that's a very perceptive question. I remember standing in the urinals with my father. We hadn't seen each other for a few weeks because we were both filming different places. Standing next to each other, doing what you do in a urinal, and he turned to me and he said, you know, we're the only two people making a film in England in the whole country. Inconceivable now, because there's such an activity going on here. There's hundreds of films being made. But at that particular moment, as you say, it's hard to relate that to now. Everyone was closing down. There was no jobs. There was no films. It was tough. With that, here's some more information about the movie. The budget was 750000 either dollars or pounds. My source said that there's disagreement as to which it is. It was a million dollars, I think. It might have been a million pounds, but if it was a million dollars, that would have been about £750,000. It made a modest profit, or it made a respectable profit, depending on who you read, but it was the sixth most popular general release movie at the British box office in 1971. The film received a 1972 BAFTA Award nomination for Ian Hendry as Best Supporting Actress. Uh, this was the year of the French Connection in the U.S., and in England, it was the year of Sunday Bloody Sunday. I read that Kane's stand-in on the film was a man called Jack Carter. Stand-in was a man called Johnny Morris. His stunt man, his stunt arranger, the film stunt arranger, he did everything. I think you're right, actually. I think there was a stand-in also called Jack Carter, but his real guy was Johnny Morris. Uh, Cyril Kinnear was played by playwright John Osborne. He was the playwright who helped usher in the angry young men period of British drama with Look Back in Anger. This was the theatrical movie debut of Alan Armstrong, who was an actor in Newcastle who managed to get a meeting with the director. The reason why I mention him is because I like him very much because I've watched the television series New Tricks. And, yeah, he's wonderful. Uh, the assassin is identified only by the initial J on his ring. It was Carl Howard's only movie role. I don't know what this means but this is what I read, an appropriate mystery surrounds his real identity. His name does not appear in the credits of some prints. 
I've also been trying to find out who he was. Okay, <laughs> so there is an appropriate mystery surrounding it. The book, which is being read by Sir Michael Caine in the initial scene of the movie, is Farewell, My Lovely, written by Raymond Chandler in 1940. Following this movie's release, barmen in Newcastle got sick of being asked for drinks in a thin glass. True. Apparently, the landlady who dropped the milk bottle did not know that Michael Caine would be naked. Neither did the marching band who seemed to pass by oblivious. Apparently also true. (laughs) And it was remade twice, first in 1972 as Hitman with Bernie Casey and Pamela Greer as a black exploitation film. And in 2000 with Sylvester Stallone, but apparently the less said about that movie, the better. I agree. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is Bad Day at Black Rock. First, some information about the film. Bad Day at Black Rock is an American crime film released in 1955. It is directed by John Sturgis and written by Dan McGuire and Millard Kaufman based on a 1947 short story, Bad Time at Honda, by Howard Breslin, published in the American Magazine. It stars Spencer Tracy, Robert Ryan, Anne Francis, Dean Jagger, Walter Brennan, John Erickson, Ernest Borgnine, Lee Marvin, Russell Collins, and Walter Sand. In late 1945, a mysterious stranger, a one-armed man, gets off the express train that unexpectedly stops at the small town of Black Rock. Why is he there? What does he want? The locals are not sure, but it may have something to do with the mysterious disappearance of a Japanese farmer and a secret the town harbors. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? Very appropriate. I thought that was a very, very good pairing. Well, Bad Day Black Rock is one of my favourite films. Spencer Tracy is one of my favourite actors. In fact, that entire cast is just unbelievably good and involves one person who I later worked with on Shout of the Devil as a line producer, Lee Marvin, who was a wonderful guy. And the character arriving in town, Spencer Tracy, to do what he's there to do, taking on the bad guys against all odds in a film noir by a great director. I mean, Sturgis is just one of the greats. And the way he arrives, moments in that film, which is like classic cowboy film in a noir background, which is also redolent in Carter when he's arriving in his train. They both arrive by train. He leaves on a train, which unfortunately Carter doesn't. Arrived by train into this town where they're going to face possible odds and people doing bad things to some good people. There's the moral ambiguity. Of all the films I've ever seen, Bad Day Black Rock, Spencer Tracy's character stayed with me in my mind, maybe most, because you think at the beginning, how's this guy going to handle the situation? He's going to get his ass kicked if he's lucky. He maintains his stance. He never deviates. It's like an arrow going through it. He's just going to do what he's going to do and he's going to get it done. I see that very, very comparable strain in the Kane character in Get Carter, where you feel he's going to find a way of getting this done. We all want to think that we could do that. There comes a point where a person's got to stand up for themselves. And also the way it's shot. I'm talking Bad Day Black Rock. Wonderful photography. Wonderful use of CinemaScope. Maybe the best I ever saw. It's like looking at paintings of it. I admit that some of the bits of it are a bit theatrically staged. Particularly like bar sequence and things like that. You know, where it's literally a bunch of people sitting around talking. I don't know, Martin Scorsese gets away with that pretty good. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of accepted it. The dialogue is so sharp. In both films, well enough. And I love that, the pithy one-liner. Particularly the stuff where Borgnine and those guys are edging up towards the first major fight. I love Bad Day Black Rock. I think it's wonderful. Do you remember when you first saw the film? I never saw it in cinema. I was probably too young. I first saw it on TV, I think on the BBC, when I was a kid. And I've seen it four or five times since. And every time I see it, I see different things in it. It never seems less than fresh. The dialogue doesn't date. The the morals don't date. The action doesn't date. 
getting more and more where for so many of these films, I have no idea when I first saw it. It's possible I saw it in college. So, yes, I also didn't see it when it opened. I would have been, I think, one year old. What are some of your favorite scenes? There's a scene where he's talking with Walter Brennan, talking about what's going to happen, and Brennan's wanting to get out of here. So that scene's wonderful. I think the scene where all the guys are talking and you feel the danger that he's going to be facing because these guys are looking at him. But in the hotel lobby scene and also the bar fight scene, I don't think it's ever been bettered. It's so obvious that you think, like, he can't handle a bull down with two hands. He's big, tough bloke, but he actually does handle him in a way that was unique at the time. People did know about judo or karate, but they didn't know much about it and certainly wasn't generally known. The performance of Tracy is wonderful because I love the way he underplays it. I think him or James Stewart, I can't make my mind up, possibly the two best screen actors I've ever seen. When it comes to the fighting, the censors did have a little issue with that because they felt that judo was not an honorable way of fighting the U.S. They had to tell the censors, well, he is one-armed. <laughs> and then they backed off. A couple of my favorite scenes, one is the opening with the arrival of the train, Fantastic. and all the people are gathering, they're standing up, they're going, why is this train stopping here? And it's yeah. not, oh, why is this train stopping here? They're going, oh, this isn't good. The train <laughs> is stopping here. Yes. Yeah. So we automatically know there's something wrong in this town. But I love the scene with Tracy and Ryan at the gas station, oh, yes. where, where Ryan thinks he's in interrogating Tracy where Ryan thinks he's getting all this information from Tracy but Tracy by being very passive in some ways he's very passive throughout the movie he's actually ends up interrogating Robert Ryan and gets all this information while Ryan gets pretty much no information out of Spencer Tracy and Ryan doesn't even realize that he got had. It reminds me of the scene in The Big Sleep when Humphrey Bogart goes to talk to Lauren McCall. Yeah, and yeah. she thinks she's interrogating him and he ends up with all this information. And she got nothing. Yeah. I also wanted to add the scene at the end of the film when the train's going. And he shakes the hand of him and he gets on the train. I just thought, like a perfect circle. Right. I also love the scene when he does show up at the deserted farm and he sees the flowers. And you instantly know, oh, the reason why the flowers are there is because the body is buried. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any flowers. You have mentioned and the George John Sturgis fan. I don't think I'm quite the fan that you are. I think he's a really good director. I don't think he comes up to Hitchcock or Ford, Houston or Wells. One thing I do admire about him is he made a lot of these big films, Gunfight at the OK Corral, The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape. And unlike Cecil B. DeMille, he managed to make them not be schlock. Yeah, they had an integrity to them. Right. He did, as you say, do this in widescreen, CinemaScope. The producers didn't know why he wanted to do a widescreen because it's very hard to fill the screen. And I often thought he did some very nice blocking, especially in the hotel lobby, of filling the screen in keeping it interesting no question he was pretty masterful in doing that because that's as you say it's not easy I mean, it's great when you're in an outdoor and you see a wide vista and mountains in the background and all that it's pretty easy but when you get inside a, a hotel lobby or something like that you've actually got to be very careful how you place the people otherwise it becomes very uh, trying in fact some of the people you mentioned like a hitchcock or something that one of the gifts they had and Rowan Plansky has it as well is they can make you look exactly the point in the screen that they want you to look at and that's also a gift that not many 
many people have. That is very interesting uh, point you make for widescreen directors, that even though they're widescreen, the best ones, you're looking at exactly what they want you to look at. It's like having a wide stage on a play. The best directors, you're not looking at the whole stage. The directors know how to bring you into focus on exactly what he wants to focus on while keeping an interesting picture overall. Exactly right. That's exactly what we're talking about. I think Sergis did have that gift. I should note that we have covered The Great Escape on the Pop Art Podcast. We paired it with the Robert Brisson film Man Escaped. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good film. But John Sturgis is a rather important director, and especially because of these big films he made, like The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape. So he has a definite place in film history and in American film history. Certainly does. You talk about the screenplay, that it's very clever and very smart. The characters are very, very interesting. Millard Kaufman is the main writer, even though Dom Negar does get some recognition. He adapted the short story first, and then Millard Kaufman adapted his version. And Miller Kaufman was the only one who got credit for that. But there are some interesting aspects to it. One of the ironies is it's about the treatment of Japanese, but there are no Japanese characters in it. Yeah. It is part of this transitional period in American filmmaking where they were dealing with more controversial subjects. But like many of the time, they always would pull their punches. So it's a very interesting way of being able to talk about a serious subject and not alienating the audience. Would that have been the studio making sure of that? No, my guess is that's just the way the original story was. Okay. It's more irony than intent. Okay. It might have been one of the reasons why it made it more interesting to the studios to make, because they didn't have to worry about this, but I have no idea. But one of the -the behind-the-scenes controversy was that Nicholas Schink, president of Lowe's Incorporated, which was MGM's parent company at the time, he almost didn't allow the film to be made because he felt the story was subversive. Many people felt the film was seen as a veiled criticism of McCarthyism and the unconstitutional internment of American citizens of Japanese descent during World War II. Notice they never criticized the Japanese internment. They just referred to it. And it reminded me of High Noon, and it's often compared to High Noon from 1952, when Cooper, before making the movie, asked if High Noon was anti-McCarthy, and he was guaranteed it was not. But they lied to him because Carl Foreman, who wrote it, said, yes, it was definitely about blacklisting. Yes, absolutely. So I think they sort of snuck this by. It was. Oh, yeah. If you want to criticize society, sometimes the easiest way to do it and get by the censors is not refer to it directly, put it in a genre, put it in another period of time, all sorts of things. It's amazing what you can get away with. You sound like a subversive. (laughs) (laughs) There are some other interesting small aspects of it. It should be noted that Lee Marvin plays a character called Hector, but he's not played as Mexican-American. He's definitely made very much white American. I have a theory that I'm going to put out that John Erickson, who is the brother of Anne Francis in the movie and runs the hotel. Now we look back at movies and we look for codes for certain diverse characters. And I think John Erickson is playing a gay character. The reason for this is the way he dresses and his hair, just so incredibly perfect and beautiful. He's described as weak, which is often code for being gay. And as his sister said, he's a sucker for a muscle man. (laughs) 
I'm just going to put that out there. Pauline Kell said that despite a storyline she called crudely melodramatic, and I think you might have heard of this, I could have misunderstood you. Yeah, the plot does get melodramatic yeah. at times. She praised it for its direction and cinematographer, calling it a very superior example of motion picture craftsmanship. I agree with that entirely. Whatever you might want to say about John Sturgis, he was an excellent craftsman. Oh, yeah. He knew how to make a movie, and he really made them. Yeah, 100%. He was kind of the ultimate craftsman. Yeah, he's one of these top studio directors who could do what they wanted and make these very superior films that appealed to the audience. It's not the same thing, but without those films, it's like the confessions. These are the films that really brought in money that could sometimes help make the other more, I guess you'd call art films. And there were art films in those days. Citizen Kane was an art film. The other two things I noticed, one of the things the plot revolves around is Robert Ryan's inability to get into the army. But he's surrounded by all these men where there's no indication that they even tried to join. I just wondered, what did they do during the war? Did they sit out the war? I mean, it's 1945. The war has been over not very long. I presuppose, and it may be just I imposed my thinking on it, that actually some of them had been in the forces. But I don't know why I thought that. Just that's what I thought. Yeah, I don't know. It's not really referred to. It's just a curiosity that appealed to me. And there are no extras. You never see anybody in this town (laughs) other than the people that we see on the screen. Now, John Sturgis does admit this takes away from the reality of the situation because how could a town like this survive with only these characters there? But he said that whenever he put in extras, and he did, he'd have a woman hanging laundry, might have kids running around, said it just took away from the drama. It was distracting. And he said, well, it's my movie. It's my town. I'm not going to have any extras. And I think he's right. If I would have seen extras in this film, I would have started going, well, who are they? And what do they have to do with the mystery? Are they guilty? It comes back to your point that I was also extrapolating upon. His thing was to control the environment and the movement of the camera and the people that you wanted you to look at. Part of that would have been a distraction to have other people. It was, to that extent, a pretty theatrical type of film. A pretty brave decision, really. Very unusual decision. In many ways, a lot of the success of the film is due to the acting, especially Spencer Tracy. You've talked about Spencer Tracy. You've said he's one of your favorite actors, along with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I think he's just fabulous in this part. He was probably too old for the role to have been in the war in the situation he was in, but you never really think about that. But he is really good in this, and it has this great supporting cast. I like the idea that he might be, apart from his one arm, he's also an older man. There were definitely soldiers around in their mid-40s in the Second World War, so I believe that. But I like the idea of his seeming fallibility and uh, vulnerability of being a slightly older, a frail person, seemingly frail. I kind of like that. They wanted him from the very beginning, from the moment they wanted to make the film. They were afraid that he would turn them down. So originally the character is not one-armed in the story or the original scripts. So they said, well, make him one-armed. No actor is going to turn down the chance to play a role with disability. (laughs) And it worked. Yeah. It does have a wonderful supporting cast. But I would especially like to point out Walter Brennan, because I have this weird history in that when I was growing up, I only knew him from a television show called The Real McCoys, where he played this hick. And that's how I saw Walter Brennan. I didn't think he was a particularly good actor. I thought he was just this silly character on this silly film. And I dismissed him. And then suddenly, I started seeing things like To Have and To Have Not, Sergeant York, My Darling Clementine, where I realized he was one of the best character actors, period. Oh, yeah. 
sometimes only the good thing in a film, giving the best performance. But he and Tracy didn't get along. Walter Brennan was a conservative who supported McCarthy. Spencer Tracy was a liberal. I'm not saying they didn't get along, but they really rubbed each other the wrong way. It doesn't appear that way in the film and play so well together, but yeah. That might have actually contributed a little to it because they do have this sort of conflict in it. This is embarrassing because I didn't put down who did the cinematography because we have to give a shout out to him. William C. Miller. He did a lot of major films. He did A Place in the Sun, The Diary of Anne Frank, a lot of westerns, and was nominated for an Academy Award for Baden Place. He was a very good cinematographer of the studio system. Died while he was 60 while shooting The Greatest Story Ever Told. But it's a beautiful film to look at. Yeah, 100%. The music... There isn't a lot of music. Andre Previn is best known for orchestrations and adapting music for musicals. He got four Oscar nominations for that. But they did add music at the beginning. The beginning originally didn't have shots of the train coming. When they showed it to preview audiences, it wasn't working. An agent told John Sturgis, you need to have the train arriving. You need to have these big shots of the train, and you need to build up in the beginning. And Sturgis says, what are we doing? We're taking notes from agents now. But Sturgis realized he's right. So they added the train coming. It was very difficult to shoot the train because it was a modern train. It wasn't an old train. The tracks were old. To get the train there, they had to run the train backward over the tracks because if something goes wrong with the tracks, you don't want the engine going off the rails. You want the... Yeah. back to go off the rails. It was very expensive, but it made all the difference. They got a helicopter to shoot, but it was too dangerous to have the helicopter approach the train. So what the helicopter did was shoot flying away from the train, and then they reversed the shot, and that's how they get those magnificent shots in the well, opening. <laughs> good, good trickery. It worked. With that, here's some more information about the film. It cost $1,288,000 to make and made $3,788,000 at the box office. Spencer Tracy won Best Actor at the 1955 Cannes Film Festival. John Sturgis was nominated for the Palme d'Or. It got three Oscar nominations for Best Director for John Sturgis, Best Actor for Spencer Tracy, Best Writing and Screenplay for Millard Kaufman. That year, Ernest Borgnine, who was Tracy's co-star, won for Marty, and Marty also won Best Picture that year. It was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 2018, framing culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The town of Black Rock was built for the film in the shadow of the former Manzanar internment camp, where Japanese Americans were incarcerated during the war. Millard Kaufman was one of the creators of Mr. Magoo in 1950. He also lent his name to screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, who had been blacklisted after investigation by the House American Activities Committee for the screenplay for Gotten Crazy. So it's easy to see that if there is a political statement being made about McCarthy, yes, it's quite possible there was, and Miller Kaufman was there doing it. The projectionist records have revealed that over the years, this has become one of the most frequently shown films in the screening room of the White House. (laughs) That's interesting. So with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. I was thinking what touched my heart the most was three films, and they're all foreign language. And they are Cinema Paradiso, which I just think is a wonderful love affair with film. I had been a young projectionist myself in a cinema, uh, assistant. Cinema Paradiso summed that feeling up for me. And the other two are French films, Man on Source and Je de Florette. Yves Montand, one of my favourite ever actors. I just think that anybody that has any interest in film should see those films. It should be like kind of compulsory. 
So I was very fortunate as a boy that my dad started showing me foreign films. That was what I grew up with. And through him, I got to meet Pia Paolo Pasolini, Franco Zeffirelli, Rainer Fassbinder. My tastes got coloured by that. He sent me to buy films from Europe for him when I was 15. But Manon de Sauce, Je de Florette, it's in my parodies. If I wanted a, just another really, really good film because it made me think, and that's the original Dust Boat. What a wonderful film, wonderful film. I'm going to do four. My first is Maigret and the St. Fiacre Case. It's the 1959 film based on a novel by the great Georges Simenon, starring the great Jean Gabin, who is the Spencer Tracy of France in many ways, who visits a friend in the countryside who then dies of a heart attack, but Inspector Maigret doesn't believe it is so simple. There are two versions of the movie Insomnia, both of which I recommend. The 2002 Christopher Nolan film with Al Pacino and Robin Williams, and the 1997 Swedish film with Stellan Scott about a police detective sent to a location where the sun doesn't set in order to solve a murder. And finally, The Wicker Man, the camp cult classic of 1973, in which a puritanical police detective goes to an island that practices a pagan religion to find out what happened to a missing girl. You've spoken of the sun, but what is next? What should we be looking for? Well, we have four films in various stages. The film we're presently shooting, which is Dirty, Sexy and Tokyo Iconic, which is a feature documentary, which is about the celebration of how the 50th anniversary of Get Carter. So it's very appropriate to this conversation. We made The Man of Get Carter, which is about my father, and it's kind of my love letter to him. And that goes on most digital platforms in September. And then we made another film called Sisters, which is the story of the only all-female orchestra in Kabul, Afghanistan. Those young ladies are probably the bravest people I've ever encountered because in Afghanistan, the Taliban are getting back in power. The Taliban have already said any woman, any girl over the age of 12 who sings or plays an instrument either stops or gets killed. These women have refused to bow to that. Some of them, since we made the film, have had to leave the country because they've also, their families have been threatened. That film's also coming out on all the digital platforms in September. We also have made a film, which we're now in post on, called Solo to Darwin, which is the very remarkable story of Amanda Harrison, who came to me and wanted to record that she was going to fly in a biplane from England to Darwin in Australia in a a Tiger Moth aircraft from 1934. So it's the story of this remarkable woman who, when she was 14, was taken aside by the principal of her school and told if she was lucky, she might make a supermarket checkout girl and ended up being a commercial jet pilot. And so that film will be ready like at Christmas time this year. Then we have two feature films in early stages of pre-production, one called Reaper's Shadow, which is kind of a dystopian thing with attitude, British-American take on the early style of the first Mad Max, shooting that overseas in uh, late summer. And the last one we're doing this year will be a film which is a romantic comedy that's called Sweet Dreams, which is our take on racism, which hopefully we can do in a humorous way. Well, that sounds incredibly exciting. Good luck on all of that. I'm sure it's going to work out very, very well. As for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I am a screenwriter and screenplay consultant, so check out my Howard Kastner Screenplay Consultation Facebook page. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I talk about issues relating to screenwriting and movies. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, fantasy, and horror short stories. 
I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, My Rantings and Ravings, of a screenplay reader on Amazon, and I am an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous podcast was with TV producer Casey O'Connor, where we discussed Streets of Fire and The Professionals, two films inspired by the Iliad about a loved one who has been abducted and a group of people sent to rescue them. I will then skip a week and return with writer-director-producer Andrew Johnson-Smith, where we will discuss Train to Busan and Northwest Frontier, a.k.a. Flame Over India, about a group of people traveling by train trying to reach a point of safety through a landscape of people trying to kill them. Well, with that, Tony, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my podcast. Thank you. And if you want to check me out, it's www.tonydavidtonydklinger.com. Fantastic.